Welcome to the California Work Comp Report. Today is Wednesday, August 8th. As always, is your host, Corey Olson, here with Dr. John Alchemy to lay down how to get your clinic started with practicing workers' comp. How are you doing tonight, John? I'm doing great, Corey. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, tonight, the topic of our podcast is talking about starting a work comp practice. And I guess we'll lead off with the question being, what is unique about work comp practices and the business? Well, work comp practice is sort of a unique kind of medicine unto itself. I, I've been doing work comp for over 20 years here in California, and I've started some clinics. I've helped um, clinics that were starting the process move forward in the process. I've joined mature clinics um, and so forth, but but they really they really are unique because they're they're kind of a practice that needs to needs to be framed in the correct environment to really be successful. So tonight, when we talk about work comp practices, I think we need to talk about well, what are some of the traditional practices that are out there that do not fit well with with workers' compensation. So the outpatient clinic is uh, traditional, like maybe the family practice or the internal medicine practice. And that's, that's where you have a doctor and they have a schedule, you know, to see patients and they have a panel of patients and they occasionally get new patients. Um, they have to make space for walk-ins because someone's, you know, maybe needs to see the doctor urgently. Um, these are, you know, the kind of practices where you call in, you make an appointment, same day, next week, I have a problem I need addressed. And that's kind of the outpatient uh, medical model. And, and, and that's not a great setting for, for occupational medicine. And here's why. Occupational medicine requires a blend of both urgent walk-in care and continuity of care. And although the family practice does a little bit of that, um, it doesn't do the walk-in care very well. Um, the next uh, model I want to talk about is just the straight-out emergency room, right? And that is really designed mostly and only for walk-in care. So it's great for occupational medicine when I just got hurt, I need an x-ray, or I just got cut and I need to be sewn up, um, or you know I'm not feeling well and I need some lab work done. Great setting for that. But again, it is not set up to see people in follow-up and continuity and do scheduled rechecks. So those are traditionally um, the, the two models I, I want the listeners here to think about as we talk about sure. where does occupational medicine fit. Very hard to imagine a, um, a follow-up checkup for a worker's comp appointment and then somebody comes in with a broken leg that needs immediate care. Exactly. Yeah. And, and on top of that, a lot of like family practice or internal medicine clinics, they're not set up to do suturing. You know, they're not set up to do x-rays on site. Um, they're not set up to do, you know, drug screening or check a blood count or do some basic lab works. It's, it's not really what they're set up to do. So, so when, when you try to get occupational medicine going in one of these settings, um, it just doesn't tend to run very well. Um, and we'll talk about some of the other things that are unique to occupational medicine practices as well from the standpoint of, you know, paperwork, reporting, and uh, administrative skills. Hmm. So urgent care is the perfect blend of walk-in access and follow-up availability. Yeah, I, I, th I think it really is. Um, you know, in, in urgent cares more and more, I think, are, 
uh, looking for sources of revenue. They're looking for ways mm-hmm. to even out the variability of the seasons with their visits. And occupational mm-hmm. medicine really, really fits well um, to serve the urgent cares in this way. Because if you think about it, um, cold and flu season, you know, urgent cares are super busy. They're making a lot of revenue. Um, everyone's getting utilized. You know, there's, there's, there's good profit. But then what happens is cold and flu season, you know, ends. It starts to get quiet. Um, and then, you know, now what are you going to do uh, for revenue? Are you going to go out and, you know, market more and do more digital advertising? Uh, you know, maybe. But, you know, why not have a practice that's built on a nice balance of walk-in, urgent care, and continuity of care in the format of workers' compensation, which really demands walk-in services and continuity of care. And I think that's why we see more and more urgent cares looking into occupational medicine, but a lot of them fail at it because you have to understand the space in order to be successful. And let's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the challenges and why some of the urgent cares do not transition well to urgent care. Or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. why the urgent cares do not transition well to occupational medicine. Pardon me. And I guess, I guess in a very, very crude way, we could say workers' comp is almost the perfect side hustle for an uh, urgent care clinic. I, <laughs> I, think, I think that's said very well, Corey. Great. <laughs> I'm, I was trying that one out. So, John, can you tell me some challenges to starting work comp? Yeah, the, the challenges um, are, are a couple. First, let's talk about the medical provider network listing. So people who do urgent care, own urgent care, or work in urgent care know that you have to get on insurance panels, okay, to see um, patients. And that's all fine and good, but kind of once you're on those panels, you're sort of dialed in and you've done your work. Um, There's credentialing and all that stuff once in a while or updating, you know, the network. But, But for the most part, once you're in, you're in. Or once you're signed up for Medicare, you're signed up for Medicare. Work comp is very, very different because it's driven by third-party mediated medical provider networks, which means it can take a long time to get on the network. It can take a long time to get seen on the network, meaning that if there's an injured worker and their employer has you know, insurance company X and they search on insurance company X, find a provider, you might be on the network, but you may not come up on the third-party search engine, which is extremely frustrating um, for the urgent cares because you do have to put in a lot of resource, a lot of credentialing. Um, usually there's some people who specialize on getting you onto the networks, and then the networks can change next week. So, so getting on the network, staying on the network, and being visible, that is more than half the game of being successful in occupational medicine. You can't just put a sign in the window that says, hey, we're doing work injuries because you're going to have someone walk in and say, I got hurt at work. And you're going to have to tell them, oh, I guess we're not on your network. Sorry, we can't help you. And that is not a successful business model. So understanding how the medical provider networks work are key to being successful and getting that launch into a successful occupational medicine practice. So you have to stay within the eye of the uh, medical provider network so that you can drive business because it's not automatically set up to just come to your door the moment that you say, we are doing work comp now. That's right. That's right. And I think, mm-hmm. I think this and, and the, the detail and the difficulty of the reporting are two of the major things that is greatly underestimated by the urgent care owner 
who thinks that they're going to start doing workers' compensation. So hmm. medical provider network, getting on the network, absolutely. Because remember, when you get referrals for Ahmed, again, it's hmm. not like you're driving down the street and you say, oh, there's an Ahmed you know, clinic there. Um, I have a cough. I'm going to drop in, you know, pay cash. That is not how it works. It is mm-hmm. you have to be seen and visible and found by mm-hmm. insurance adjusters, by the company themselves. They have to know that you're seeing their patients. And the employer has to be able to find you when they go to the website and say, hey, someone just got hurt. I got to have them seen. Absolutely. Quick aside, um, what are some good techniques to get sort of visibility in terms of the uh, medical provider network? for the uh, aspiring occupational medicine clinic? Yeah. Well, my recommendation is to find someone who specializes in medical provider uh, network enlisting because it's almost a subspecialty of a subspecialty. So, you know, usually you'll be able to find someone um, and, and, and often you will find them associated with billing services. Um, so if you, if you have like an occupational medicine biller that you're thinking of working with, usually those people either can do some credentialing themselves or knows someone who can do some credentialing. And I will tell you, you probably want to start your credentialing process six months to a year before you start planning on seeing patients, because it is that bureaucratic. It is that confusing. And even once you're on the network and you get a piece of paper and says, great, we're happy to see, you know, have you seen our patients for insurance company Y, um, you know, YXZ, you know, welcome. Mm-hmm. Thanks for seeing our patients. Still doesn't mean you're going to come up on the website when someone's looking to get you a patient. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of moving parts and a lot of these networks are put together by third parties that control the search. It's, it must be very interesting for our listeners who are sort of unfamiliar with the world of workers' compensation and everything to imagine that even clinics have a degree of marketing and a degree of business savvy that they have to have when, when you sort of think of the, the doctor as somebody who never runs out of business. So as, as people who are listening just know that doctors have to do this too, yeah. or clinics have to do that too in order to get the patients in the door. Absolutely. And when an urgent care is like hiring their manager and so forth, it is not unusual for a successful urgent care slash occupational medicine clinic to have a manager in both departments. And and rarely will it be the same person because the knowledge to run the comp is so specialized that you really can't ask your office manager, you know, Bill or Karen to Mm. say, hey, we're doing, we're going to start up, uh, you know, occupational medicine. Oh, we'll learn it on the fly. It's no big deal. You know, I went mm-hmm. to a seminar and uh, they said it was really easy. You know, it's like anything else. It's really easy once you know what to do. <laughs> mm, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's that's a uh, that's a chicken or an egg kind of situation in and of itself. Sure. So, John, can you tell me a little bit about these hidden clients in occupational medicine? Well, there are hidden clients, and, and it's not just the insurance company, and it's ju- not just the patient um, that is your client when you're doing workers' comp. You also have the employers that you have to deal with, which is um, another personality and another stakeholder and another need. Now you're going to find yourself in the arena of insurance adjusters um, much more um, actively involved in calling your clinic and asking questions and sending letters 
than you typically do with a routine uh, urgent care visit for someone who's coming in for a cough or cold. Um, they are case managers. They, you know, have to make sure that the case is moving forward. Um, they are charged with, you know, making sure that uh, treatment is appropriate. And you are going to have to work a lot more directly with the insurance companies. And that's not just your back office. That's going to be the doctors, your mid-levels. Everyone has to kind of understand how, you know, that piece of business takes place to keep that stakeholder happy. Next, there is a lot of litigation in workers' compensation. And litigation means you're going to start getting letters from attorneys. So you have to be able to understand their language, how to answer their questions, and how the system really works in order to be able to effectively um, communicate. And that's both attorneys for the injured worker and for the insurance company. So you've got both sides of it attorneys to deal with. Next, you might get letters from judges because the insurance company has to send your report um, when there's a question or a concern into the state. And the state then has, has um, people called um, evaluators and the disability evaluation unit is what we call it in California. And now you're going to be getting letters from the state about the quality of your reports and the content. And then finally, you have the oversight um, uh, of the state, and it's called the Division of Workers' Compensation in most states, and they may be sending you um, letters or need clarification or have concerns about um, the state of your practice. So you can see that you have a much larger audience that you have to understand and be able to speak to than someone coming in with a cough or cold. This is why it's so important to have a separate manager to be handling the occupational medicine aspect, because largely they're going to be the ones that are going to be rifling through a lot of the clients and, and sort of establishing the, being the liaison between the physician and all of these clients, right on down from the employer to the DWC and everything else. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, um, that is problem number two, if we're keeping a list here for uh, clinics trying to start up uh, workers' compensation. And that is the, the person power that goes on in the back office. Because when someone comes in for a cough or cold, you know, maybe you have the back office, they have to verify their insurance or do something like that. But once you're, once you're managing a patient for a workers' comp claim, you have to have someone that basically gets assigned as a case manager in your office to this person. Because for these follow-up visits, you're going to be ordering things. You're going to be ordering diagnostic tests, physical therapy, medications, and all these have to be submitted to an insurance company, go through a process for approval, come back, and then your practice needs to assist the patient in getting the care that they need. When this happens, um, you can imagine the amount of back office staff that you have to have in order to drive these visits. And now in my practice, I will say that probably for every patient that comes in, for every 15-minute visit that happens with a patient, we need to spend 40 to 45 minutes of office staff to submit that report, to submit the request, follow up with the patient, to help them get the services. You know, so it's a one to three, sometimes a one to four spend of time um, for that patient visit for what your office has to put out. And urgent cares are not used to being case managers. And, and you need to understand that is hurdle number two. My office needs to become a case management office to successfully take care 
of workers' compensation. That is quite a workload. It is. <laughs> it, it's very, very sobering for the clinic, again, with limited resources to start this up, because now you're starting to staff up you know, your clinic, and you still don't have the revenue rolling in. I mean, once you start comp and you grow the comp practice, it's great. But you really, really have to understand it will take up to two years before you start to see the revenue come in and get profitable in a work comp practice if you're just like starting it as a bolt-on to urgent care. Um, and, and that's another thing that clinics just totally miss. They underestimate the amount of manpower needed to drive these cases in order to see them for follow-up visits, um, you know, visit after visit. It's, it's a very, very time-intensive um, proposition. So in order to start a work comp clinic, you need to get ready and you need to stay ready because there is a lot of due diligence involved. Absolutely. Getting the thing off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Can, so so yeah. think about this. You're starting a new line of product. You're going to be an Ahmed practice. You know, good mm-hmm. for you. Great. It's exciting. Maybe, maybe you've had a lot of employers saying, oh, we'd send you so much business if we had work prompt. Well, that's great. But, you know, you do have to have all of these medical provider networks, the back mm-hmm. office staffing and so yes. forth. And uh-huh. then now let's think about updating your staff skills. So if you have a couple of doctors on staff or mid-levels, you now have to scale all this across your providers, which is extremely difficult because a lot of these uh, knowledge threads are very deep and are complicated and take years to master, um, you know, not just a couple weeks or a couple months. So, you know, if you don't have the right staff hired in, the right manager, the right lead doc who knows what they're doing, you are going to spend money hand over fist and still not be profitable, not get paid for your reports, and have all of your clients immediately unhappy because you don't know what you're doing. That's a challenge. You know, I like to... I personally, I personally take things as, uh, as, as, as challenges in life, you know, something, something happens, it comes up, it's a challenge, uh, where, where previously it might be a problem or, or something of the like. And, uh, and that's quite a challenge. And I think that the, the, the very headstrong aspirational clinic, even individual physician might see this sort of challenge as sort of exciting if they wanted to go into that field, the determined individual We'll certainly find it fruitful because it sounds like the process involved with getting all this started deters a lot of individuals, which means quite a bit of revenue up in the air for the one who succeeds. Yes. Yeah. The market opportunity Mm. is incredible um, Mm. because it's very hard for a clinic to hit all of these elements and be successful and profitable and not run out of cash. You know, that Mm. is the big thing. If you are not able to, to staff up, pick the right lead people to do this kind of work, you're going to bump along. Maybe you'll do okay. Maybe you'll break even, but breaking even does not keep the lights on and grow your practice. You have to be successful. Absolutely. To be profitable. Yeah, absolutely. You are in California. I consider myself a lifelong Californian. And, and in California, there are three specific reports that a physician and a work comp clinic must invariably pay attention to and and perform when you're a work comp clinic 
Can you tell us a little bit about the doctor's first report, the PR2 report, and the PR4 permanent stationary report? Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about California in terms of the quote-unquote titles of these reports, but these reports and these stages of injury are actually universal um, for any workers' comp system of any state. Um, so think about a claim as sort of um, a, a life, if you will. Um, a claim must be born. And that's called the doctor's first report. And that's where a claim is um, coming forward. It's being described. The body parts are being assigned. The uh, treatment is being outlined. The length of the active care um, is being, uh, you know, made known um, to the stakeholders. Um, You know, functional limitations, what they can and can't do. All these things go into what's called the doctor's first report in California. We call that the, um, uh, the DFR. So, so this report is the beginning, uh, the birth of the claim, if you will. And then we have the, the growing um, and the adolescence and the maturity, if you will, of the life cycle yeah. of the claim. And those take place in visits called the PR2. Now, the fact they're called PR2 is just kind of consequential. Each state might call it something else. But these are the workhorse visits. These are the claim is open. We're actively trying to get this um, injured worker recovered to a more functional state. We're trying to minimize um, the impairment that they have. We're trying to minimize their functional limitations. We're trying to get them back to work um, as fast as we can, as safely as we can. So those PR2 visits um, are visits that in California, you have to see someone every 65 days. Usually you'll see them a little sooner than that because treatment determinations need to be made. Did this work? Do we need to change treatment course? Um, So forth. There's a lot of, of, you know, um, questions that, that need to take place. Now, the average, um, based on my experience in database, for a claim that is going to be non-surgical, okay, the, the claim, if someone gets hurt, they don't require surgery, but ultimately they're not going to get better, running them through the process for the therapy, the medications, the diagnostic tests, a consultant with a specialist, finding out they're not going to have surgery, and then finally determining the final report and the settlement of their claim, that can easily take 18 months, okay? That is like uh, getting checked for your cold and flu or getting a treatment for pneumonia and, you know, being better in uh, eight weeks. We're we're talking Mm. 18 months, sometimes two years, just to get this thing to move through the, the stages that it has to. And I mentioned before, this is a bureaucratic system. And if, you're, if your office is not able to set up this, document these reports, you are not going to be successful in this business. I see. Yeah. So one, one can consider the PR2 report kind of being a, a follow-up slash progress report on the injury that, that is kind of checking up on the, uh, the progress of the whole thing, which yeah. can draw out due to, as you said, the bureaucracy and all the things involved. And is the 18 months does that does that necessarily handle sort of the the lifetime of the injury itself as well or is it the bureaucracy that really takes up that large amount of time there well um it's it's really the bureaucracy i think in my opinion there there are some other things like you know best practices and treatment guidelines that insurance companies and states adhere to that have to be followed mm. so a little different than you know going in and seeing your primary care doctor, you know, for a one-time visit and getting treated and getting better um, because of all the bureaucracy. Um, so, but, but again, think of that PR2 visit as 
the the aging and the maturity of the claim. You're gonna, you know, you're kind of in infancy. You're adolescent with the claim. It gets mature, and then um, and then it has to transition. And I don't want to say that it dies. Um, <laughs> it's not really dying, but but at some point the claim has to be called out as no longer getting better or what we call in the business of maximally medically improved or MMI. Now, when that happens, okay, a lot of things happen for the claim and the stakeholders. First of all, um, their condition is determined not to be getting any better. Next, it has to be um, valued and priced out using an impairment process. Um, I won't go too much into the details and Listeners can listen to some of our other um, podcasts on maximal medical improvement and so forth. Mm. But you have to figure out what the price of the settlement claim is. And then the PR4 report has to figure out the afterlife, if you will, or the future care. So, you know, someone may be dependent on medications in order to remain functional or to control their pain level, or they might need durable medical equipment like hearing aids, um, you know, paid for happily ever after. Um, you know, or they might need to have access to physical therapy for anticipated flare-ups, or they might have to have the hardware removed from the fracture that they had fixed, you know, all of these Mm. things. So the PR4 becomes a pivotal part of that claim that then tells the stakeholders everything they need to know and kind of the conclusion. It's that last chapter. Um, and then, and then once that's done, the claim continues the clinic continues to see the patient, um, but it's under a much more um, uh, routine follow-up process. Like maybe you're going to see them every three months for a med fill, or maybe you're going to see them twice a year, or maybe you're just going to see them when they flare up and need to come in for a little physical therapy. So the intensity and the requirements of the follow-up become much less after they hit that MMI or that maximal medical improvement. So with respect to the life cycle of the, of the claim, yeah. uh, you know, so, sometimes after an average of 18 months, it just, it's, it's a relief to see things go. <laughs> well, I tell you, people are pretty burned out at 18 months. You know, the patient's been coming in, the, um, the doctor, you know, has been trying to do their best to get them better. The employer's wondering, hey, is this person ever going to get back to full duty? Insurance company is like, well, what's the end game here? And, you know, what's our, what's our liability and exposure? You know, all of this mm-hmm. stuff is going on. And, and these cases can get intense. And, and again, mm-hmm. your practice, you know, doing urgent care now, workers' comp has to be prepared for this flavor of medicine because it's unlike mm-hmm. anything that you do in urgent care. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, John, you mentioned earlier how your practice sort of needs to really migrate into the avenue of being a case management sort of practice at this point, once you sort of move into the place of occupational medicine. Um, and what does that mean in terms of training the staff? So training the staff is, I think, the big third hurdle um, for for the practice thinking about going into workers' compensation. And training the staff is my specialty. It's one of the things I specialize in. And in fact, um, I started this company called RateFast uh, several years back to address this very issue. Because the biggest challenge, as I mentioned before, is you now have a staff that's used to doing urgent care, quick one visits, maybe one follow-up back to their primary care doctor. And now the urgent care is becoming the primary 
care doctor, if you will, in a workers' compensation claim. And this is a big transition. So we talked about it's highly bureaucratic. There are many stakeholders to keep happy. And and you are not going to get that check paid to your practice if your reports are not complete and accurate. Okay? And that's really now where the clinic needs to decide what are we going to use for our platform to generate these reports? Because the real way to think about it is the reports are your livelihood in occupational medicine, okay? Of course you want good customer experience. Of course you want the patients to be happy, feel like they're listened to, get good care. But it's the reports that define occupational medicine more so than almost anything else. It's the rate at which the case is managed, how quickly it's moved forward, and it's something that we call injury mapping. It's very, very easy in this bureaucratic system to lose your way when you're managing not just one, but two or three or four injured body parts that are, that are recovering at different rates, or the patient might have two or three or four separate injuries, dates of injury. So you have to be confident and you have to, you have to find that platform that is going to maximize the scaling of this knowledge across your platform. But really, RayFast was founded because of these unique issues to occupational medicine. So you need a system that's going to be able to do the DFR, that's going to give a consistent patient and stakeholder experience, meaning making sure all the questions get asked every time, and not just one of your doctors are really good at doing reports and the others aren't. That's not going to work. That's not going to make you successful. And as you know, doctors and mid-levels and office staff, they migrate. They come to your practice. They might go somewhere else. They move. You know, life happens. But you've got to have, you have to have this platform that's going to hold it all together and make a consistent quality report that's scalable across everyone that has to touch these reports. And that's really the, the last hurdle in getting your practice successful in workers' compensation. You know, it's really hard to believe that with this sort of bureaucratic structure that makes up what occupational medicine and work comp is, that there isn't, wasn't already some sort of standardized report that would kind of move things along more fluidly. So it does sound like a software, a, you know, a, a general helping hand, uh, such as something like RateFast is just plum necessary at this point. Um, otherwise it sounds like a lot of chaos. So it does save a lot of time for the, for the clinic that is aspiring to do occupational medicine. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's indispensable that you have the right tool, um, you know, for, for the job at hand. And this is, this is a subspecialty of, of occupational medicine, report writing, report delivering, um, informational um, access is is critical. And you are going to be bombarded with everyone telling you my software is the best. You know, we have billing integrated. We can, we can write PR2 reports. We can, you know, print up a doctor's first, you know. But I will tell you, I have yet to come across a piece of software that can handle um, work comp injuries from beginning to end and include the impairment rating piece that is actually a subspecialty of the subspecialty of occupational medicine. 
pricing these claims, getting them right, doing them fairly, okay, I can't tell you how valuable that is to the stakeholders in workers' compensation. I don't care what state you're in. If you can get it done right the first time, you are going to be the busiest occupational medicine clinic um, known to man. If you Mm. get this right, if you can minimize the delay and the confusion and have clarity in your reports that are consistent and consistently turned out by each provider in your practice, that is going to be the golden recipe for your urgent care becoming a successful occupational medicine clinic. And John, do you have any last words for the aspiring occupational uh, clinic or the aspiring work comp clinic that you might give to them? Yes, I would say that, uh, number one, do your homework, okay? Mm. Not something that you just want to decide over dinner one night that, oh, I see uh, urgent care down the street just added occupational medicine. I think I need to do that too. You have to do your homework on this. Number two is... If your staff is not well-versed in occupational medicine, trying to teach your staff and learn your way as you open up the business is not the way to go, number two. Mm. Number three, you're going to need specialized software to manage the ins and outs of case management correctly. So you can't just say, oh, well, we're going to use um, uh, you know, a software Acme out of the box and we'll make it work for work comp. That is Mm. not going to work. You're going to have to have a specialized tool for the specialized piece of medicine, which is occupational medicine. If you're interested in learning more about making your clinic into a workers' comp clinic, visit our blog at blog.rate-fast.com and drop into our website at rate-fast.com.